Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema, and I'm really excited to let you know that we are opening enrollment in our first ever course titled the Agency Lead Generation Course. And if you'd like to get the updates when we open enrollment, which is going to happen Monday, August 3rd, again, that's that's this coming Monday, August 3rd, for a few short days, we're opening enrollment to those who are most interested. And if that's you, you can find out uh, as soon as the card opens by going to saleschema.com slash course launch. Again, saleschema.com slash course launch. So some context on the course material. You know, the, the fact is that if you're running an agency or you're a salesperson at an agency, going outside your personal network and building sustainable new business systems for your agency for the first time can some can be a little bit like jumping into cold water. While you're not starting at zero, while you might have experience in strong case studies, you're essentially selling in a new way to a new sort of buyer. And that's somebody that has zero connection to you who may be at an earlier stage of his or her journey. And you and your team are essentially learning a new set of skills. And as with most things in business, these skills are equal parts art, science, and hustle. Unfortunately, the vast majority of owners and salespeople who jump into this cold pool for the first time tread water for way too long, for way longer than they should. And we see this every day. And it plays out a number of ways, either by hiring the wrong people, lane switching too much due to shiny objects like software, social media channels, data purveyors, sales system, sales coaches, uh, and or quick bursts of sales activity, followed by long lulls of complacency in, in light of busyness or otherwise lack of motivation. So with that in mind, this course was created and driven to help students do one thing, and that's build momentum. So just like the Tour de France, steady momentum is everything when it comes to sales activity and for actually getting results in the context of selling high-end complex marketing services. Momentum requires a strong start, followed again by consistency. So the question is, what's the best way to get started and stay consistent? And how do you stave off all of those shiny objects and the other hazards that I mentioned? And the answer is by giving yourself constraints. You limit your inputs and you turn up the complexity over time. So that's exactly what we did in this step-by-step course. And a few examples of those constraints include, number one, the channels. We focused on the time-tested bread and butter of B2B sales, which is basically email, LinkedIn, and phone. The second constraint are the prospects. And in the course, you're going to learn how to use those channels to tastefully contact 50 to 100 prospects weekly and de-risk conversations with them. The third thing we focused on are your tasks and your time, basically delegation. And this is the constraint that's all about how to divide up your team or if you're solo, your own schedule into three different hats or baskets of activities. And those three things are strategy, operations, and hustle. So if you'd like to dig further into the nitty gritty of the course and get the complete curriculum as well as the updates when we launch on Monday, you can do that by going to saleschema.com slash course launch. Again, once more, that's saleschema.com slash course launch. Today on the podcast, we have Sharon Torek. Sharon is principal at Legal and Creative, which is an intellectual property law firm focused on advertising and marketing law 
and other related matters for creative people based in Cleveland, Ohio. So like some other recent inaugural episodes, this is our first ever legal episode focused on how law applies to this wild and interesting and crazy world of advertising that we're, we all live in every day. So I, I feel like we covered some really uh, interesting questions on this interview with Sharon. I asked her, you know, what are the most common issues you're encountering these days? And part of that is basically what are the biggest legal blind spots you see in the agency world? We talked about the idea of, you know, if you could only make one legal investment for your agency in the next three months, what should it be? Sharon answers that question, I think, quite well. I asked her what issues are on the front lines of what you'd call marketing law. And we talked all about IP and we, you know, usually think of Silicon Valley inventions, et cetera. But what are those areas? What are those neglected areas of IP in the agency world? So without further ado, please give it up for Sharon Torek. Sharon, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Dan. Yeah, yeah. So we just wrapped up talking and there's so many questions I have about what's going on on the front lines of legal in the agency world these days. And I, I know that you happen to have just completed a pretty, pretty robust research project. So maybe we can jump in by t- talking about that and talking about what you're seeing based on that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm happy to. We really wanted to know, you know, after a number of years of representing agencies uh, with their intellectual property and their marketing law issues, we really wanted to take a pause and find out um, what were the top legal issues they were consistently experiencing as they were running their agencies day to day? What were the things that were coming up most frequently? And then what we really wanted to know um, were two things, and they were basically attitude-based things. Um, how do they feel about them? And not in a touchy-feely sort of way, but how did they... Um, how do they react to the day-to-day legal stuff that arises when you're running an agency? Are they generally feeling pretty protected? Are they anxious? Um, and then next, we wanted to know how are you? How are they handling them? Were they um, using an in-house uh, resource? Were they just hunting online for? Um, tools and templates and sort of um, hunting and pecking for things? Or do they have an actual relationship with somebody who understands their industry um, and the types of law that is relevant to what marketers need? And so uh, we really had fun absorbing the results. Uh, As I said, we talked to about 224 agency leaders. And we, this was original research that we engaged with a firm called Audience Audit um, to do. And Audience Audit, you know, specializes in attitude segmentation, which I didn't know what it was before uh, we engaged them to do this research. But it basically sort of sorts respondents into um, how they're feeling about what you're asking them about. And so basically, they sorted themselves generally into three categories. And these are labels that the researchers sort of just applied to um, identify them as categories. Uh, One category was the proactive and protected. And these are agencies that have a regular relationship with legal counsel, or they engage legal counsel regularly um, to manage their legal issues. Um, The second category was sort of exposed and anxious. 
And what amused me about this category is even though they spend a lot of time worried about or being concerned with the legal stuff that they have to deal with, um, they tended to also have um, relationships and resources in the legal arena. So um, they're just really on top of it and, and always thinking about it. And then the third category um, were what we affectionately, were affectionately named the lawyer avoiders. Um, and this is, you know, I'm, these are no uh, surprise to me having worked in the agency world for a long time. But these are folks who, um, they're the do-it-yourselfers. They're the people who don't want to call legal counsel um, and invest that money in legal services um, until the last possible moment. And so um, they kind of sorted themselves out fairly evenly among the categories. I will say lawyer avoiders were the largest um, but only maybe about five or 10 percentage points. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's super interesting. Um, what's, uh, I guess like one, one small question is what, what is really the difference between group one and group two, you know, exposed and anxious versus proactive and protective. Is that just purely an emotional psychological thing or are there actually. It was attitudinal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it was attitudinal. The, um, the proactive and protected generally felt pretty good about, um, the systems and relationships they had in place and the tools they had in place to sort of manage um, their legal issues. The exposed and anxious, um, I don't want to, I don't want to paint a picture of them being neurotic necessarily because yeah. that's not how they came off at all. They um, presented themselves as um, always being thoughtful and concerned about whatever the legal implications of the work that they were doing. So they kind of wanted to double check um, more frequently. Right. So if I understand right, group one's kind of like, they're thinking of it as an insurance policy. They're just like, set it, set it up the right way. Don't worry about it versus thinking, yeah. worrying about legal at every twist and turn, but essentially having the same protections or similar protections. I think so. I think that's mm -hmm. probably a good distinction to make. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, the proactive and protective folks just view legal process and legal due diligence as part of the costs of entrepreneurship or running a business and, um, and not, and not something to be perceived as, um, sort of, uh, you know, a last resort. Um, they built it into, um, their business operations. And so, um, they felt fairly secure about where they were or that they have the tools and relationships to manage any new issue that might come along. Right, right. And you've obviously, you know, been, been in law and been in the agency world for a long time. So I guess one question is, what, if anything, uh, surprised you about this, this research and about this data? So I was, that's a great question. I wasn't surprised by sort of the most frequently encountered legal issues that got presented to us. Um, agencies, the most frequently asked questions tend to be in the areas of their master service agreements, um, negotiating with independent contractors, um, and now increasingly social media influencer marketing and privacy. So that didn't surprise me. What did surprise me um, is that very few agencies seem to be taking as seriously as I would like them to take um, the opportunities that they have to create new revenue streams with their intellectual capital. Um, it tends to be seen as inventory that's... Um, expendable in the in amongst most independent agencies um, it might be something they created for a client and um, it got rejected or it might be something they created for a pitch and therefore they don't see the value in resurrecting it 
um, or they just are not in the habit of taking time to sort of catalog their own intellectual property as they go. And, and, and I think the pandemic has helped them think about how are we going to generate revenue in a new way when we may not have the same fee-for-service opportunities we've always had. Mm-hmm. And so now we're starting to see agencies think a little bit more about putting together um, virtual events or um, education opportunities that they can deliver online. Um, and they, they're realizing they have a ton of institutional knowledge, either because maybe they work in a particular vertical um, or because they are specialists at a particular um, area or discipline of marketing. And they have a lot to say about it and a lot to teach. And that can be turned into an additional revenue stream while you're also delivering services to your clients to make money. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super interesting. And, you know, we've always gone back and forth, you know, in our company and you know, we see this with our clients too, in terms of the value of that, that internal IP. So I guess, you know, to kind of give a contrarian take on that, how do you feel about like the sort of Silicon Valley argument where, which I tends to be true a lot of the time, I think where, you know, it's not about the idea, it's about implementation and all that. And the idea of, creating, you know, tr- trying to market IP is like creating a whole nother company sometimes. Uh, I, I guess my, my question with that and to hopefully um, be a little bit more optimistic about the opportunities you're talking about is what, what are some examples of that that you've seen where your clients or others have said, okay, we're going to, we're going to make this into our IP. And then they've actually been able to market it and get it out there and do, do cool stuff with it. Yeah. So some of the best examples that I have seen are, um, and, and, and I take your point and I respect it because um, even though I'm an intellectual property lawyer and, you know, I'm kind of a purist about protecting it, I totally get that this is an economic argument um, for agencies and you've got to put your resources where they're going to create the best return for you and enable you to be um, a viable business as long as possible. So what the, my take on it is this, if you have a particular um, skill set or discipline as an agency that you can add value um, at scale by teaching, that's a terrific opportunity. That is taking what you already know, packaging it into um, a, a, a series of um, e-lectures or digital courses or um, libraries, resource libraries that you make available on a subscription basis. This is taking stuff that you have already created and simply positioning it or leveraging it in an additional channel to create revenue um, aside from, um, you know, this isn't intended in my view to take away from your main work, which is business development and marketing um, for clients for the agency. But if you've got a particular area of expertise in a vertical, as I mentioned, um, and you know a lot about an industry that your peers don't know, um, and you can teach that stuff, that's one opportunity. You've already got that institutional knowledge. Um, If you um, have created, if you've worked in a particular client segment enough that you've got a lot of model assets, we've worked with clients who created entire model campaigns Um, that ended up not being executed um, by the client. And that's stuff that they can package and make available on a turnkey basis to multiple clients at scale. So that's another example. Um, It really comes down to just taking, thinking differently about the assets you already have 
auditing them to see, do they really have any marketability? You know, because that should always be, I think, the first question when you're thinking about monetizing this stuff. Um, and if you think that they do, then then you start thinking about the IP protection behind them and how you're going to leverage them for money. But so I don't I don't I don't think that it's as um, far from what you do for your clients as maybe right. many agencies think that it is. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. And I think a lot of the stuff's very symbiotic, right? If you're creating yeah. a, a webinar, or even if you're selling some educational package, that's essentially marketing for the done for you service, potentially. I mean, that's something we do a lot of. So I do think this all ties together. And, and I'm definitely with you. But I guess to put let's, let me just like jump into the shoes of the lawyer avoiders for a second, right? The, the skeptical group. And they're saying like, okay, you know, I'm with you. I, I like the idea of us developing our own stuff and doing all this, but why, why do I need to hit up a lawyer? Why do I need to jump through these hoops and make a big legal investment? You know, what, like what's that really protecting me from? Yeah. Um, so lawyer avoiders, I, in my experience, usually show up in the form of, uh, in two ways. They either show up by not taking necessary legal measures into the last possible moment. Um, so ultimately they do consult with the legal counsel that they need, but they don't do it, um, without kicking and screaming over to the finish line. Um, or secondly, they are, um, they take a very much do it yourself approach. They are either template hunters, you know, they will, um, perhaps somebody who's on staff at the agency has a great contract form that they've you know, inherited from the last agency they worked at and it gets revised and revised and revised. So that's usually how lawyer avoiding shows up. And again, these are not my labels. These were just labels we sort of created to categorize the segments. Um, And so there's no judgment implied in any of them. That's just how we segregated. Um, As to your question regarding um, IP specifically, I think that my response is that you have to make the amount of time or energy or money that you invest in protecting your intellectual property as an agency should directly be related to um, what your monetization plans might be. And so there's a series of questions that, you know, I typically like to walk an agency through is, you know, what, how likely are you to try to take this to market? Um, What is your level of, risk assumption comfort. Um, are you going to be investing money to get this to market in other ways? Because the more you're going to be investing to bring a product to life, the more likely it is you should be investing in the legal protection and due diligence behind it. Um, so some of them are risk assumption questions and some of them are what have you done already questions to sort of protect these things. And not every um, body of work is going to be worth um, pursuing the um you know, the legal protections for, but at a minimum, um, most opportunities I've seen agencies take advantage of in this area involve um, a lot of content. And where there's content, there's a lot of copyright implications, licensing, um, you know, registration, uh, assignment of works for hire, things like that. So um, that usually tends to be where the issues show up most frequently. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I guess my thinking on this, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, on this from your perspective and let me know if you think it's flawed is that, you know, the, the legal investment obviously is not insignificant. And my thinking is, you know, if you're going to develop IP, 
you create it, you get it out there, you see if it's working, maybe for however long that needs to happen. Maybe that's weeks, maybe it's months. And then once you know you're onto something, then you get legal involved as opposed to taking something that's untested, making a giant legal investment, and then finding out that it's not going to work. I guess like how much would you agree or disagree with that, that modest operandi, (laughs) that way of operating? Yeah, I think it all comes down to your, um, to the level of risk assumption that you're comfortable with. Um, If you're comfortable with assuming the risk of putting it out there um, and having, um, having it exposed without protection um, because you're either going to wait and see what the market is for it, or because you haven't um, sunk a lot of investment into it, that that's a business judgment. I mean, at the end of the day, these are all business decisions, right? Right. And you have to be comfortable. Um, What I would say though, to people who, to entrepreneurs who are comfortable with assuming risk and uh, you know, big risk, big rewards. I totally respect that perspective. Um, but just at least understand the risks that you're taking before you do that. I would say if you're going to hold back on investing in legal due diligence and protection, um, at least have the information you need to know so that you fully understand um, what risks you're assuming by getting out there unprotected. And the risks may be small or they may be more significant. It just depends. I mean, we've right. had, you know, I've seen great examples of one of my favorite examples, and this is an agency that happens to be based in my hometown um, of Cleveland. They are always creating new um, new opportunities based upon what they have learned and the expertise they've developed serving their clients. And so they've um, they've created an entire institute of learning in a particular discipline, which is artificial intelligence. Um, they created an entire conference event about it, a virtual event, um, and now they're creating e-learning opportunities around artificial intelligence. And this all derived from what they learned serving their own client base. Um, and now they're creating um, multiple silos of potential additional revenue streams by monetizing the knowledge that they have. And so that's a case where, you know, the deeper you get into the investment, the more steps you have to take, I think, to think about what risk you're assuming before you go to market. Right, right. And my guess is there's other interesting angles that could go to, you know, defending that property or <laughs> profiting from it or, or whatever. Um, I, I guess one question I have is just like, I'd love to hear just like war stories, <laughs> you know, just the, not necessarily the dirt or anything like that, but just what, what's that thing that you're like, I can't believe this is walking into my office again for the millionth time. Like if only, <laughs> if, I, if I could put this on a billboard for every agency out there so that they don't do this thing. Like, I don't know if you have that at the top of mind, but that's where I'm going with this question. <laughs> No, that's a really, that is a really excellent question. And, you know, I don't think anybody's ever put it to me quite, quite that way in the past. Um, okay, I would say, I, I probably have a couple examples of this. Um, I have seen a million times, um, we've gotten a million calls from either um, agency people um, or their their brand clients who have taken a campaign to market and they have not secured the rights to all of the assets or imagery that is in the campaign and it's gone to market and now there's a copyright infringement situation. 
seen it hundreds of times, whether it's because someone grabbed an image off Google Images and neglected to take the step of getting it licensed, um, or whether it is because a freelancer was used to contribute some aspect of the work, whether it was copywriting, photography, music, whatever it might be. Um, and they're in a jam then because <clears throat> copyright infringement is a strict liability situation. If you've done it, you've done it and somebody's going to pay. So um, I guess if I had a billboard, that's probably what I would <laughs> have to say, you know, and f- fortunately in, you know, eight or t- eight out of 10 situations where that occurs, ultimately it's about making the creator whole. So you work it out either with a license or the appropriate compensation um, rather than it turning into an infringement problem. But that's probably one of the most frequently repeated mistakes that we see. And now increasingly, I would say another one is with social media campaigns that are executed with use of influencers. Um, Mm -hmm. Just having um, a, a good regime for making sure that you're working with influencers who understand the rules, um, making sure that the brand understands the rules and that the agency's team members are educated. Cause we get a lot of questions that shouldn't, um, come up if people understand what the rules of the road are. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I kind of want to keep grilling you with the same question in different different categories. So to to bring that same question to the agency client relationship, I'd love to hear what, what you're seeing time and time again there. I think that, um, a couple of things frequently, I guess the most frequent breakdown, and, and this depends upon the size of the client that the agency is working with. Our client base, our agency client base tends to be, they're independent agencies and they tend to be mid or small in size, but most of them work with enterprise size clients. And when they're working with enterprise size companies as clients, the contract negotiation process can be very um, protracted. It can be very long and you face a lot of pressure to work off the contract that the enterprise presents to you. So The terms that usually come up there that are a problem for agencies are when do the rights to the work transfer? And in most cases, um, there is a difference of opinion with the client wanting the work right away. They want to own it immediately when it's done and the agency needing to not transfer the work to them until they get paid. So that is a huge issue that we see time and time again in the agency client relationships. Um, Next, I would say, um, Portfolio display rights are a big question that come up all the time in agency client relationships. Are is the agency going to be able to use samples of the work or um, logos from the client in their promotional work? Are they going to be able to throw them up on their website? Can they create case studies? Can they submit them to award competitions? Um, and you know, increasingly, this has to become part of the part of the negotiation when you're trying to get the contract signed. And it seems like a simple thing, but it isn't. Um, yeah. So that comes up frequently. And I would say liability is probably the third thing that comes up a lot with agency client relationships is who's going to be liable if something goes sideways once work gets released into the world. Um it's yeah, that that makes sense, and I'd love to hear you know your perspective. But, but mine, you know, working on the account side years ago, um, with with enterprise clients and basically a small boutique agency, was that 
the client side people, like our direct contacts, our, our clients just wanted stuff. They just wanted it to get to be done. Like they, they didn't have much of a personal prerogative to enforce X, Y, Z from like a master services agreement. We had our prerogative to own the IP until the right time and all this stuff. Cause we're a small shop and it mattered. And then there was the lawyer that had the prerogative to defend XYZ, you know, master services agreement. But what we found is that whenever we stood our ground just a little bit, that lawyer was like in kind of a rough spot because if they like scuttled this whole deal, this whole engagement that the, the, the company needed to get done, that would not be a good look for them, you know? So they can all, so I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Like, uh, how, you know, there's not going to be a perfect answer here, but how much should agencies hold their ground on this stuff? My <laughs> perspective is I would love to bottle up what you just said and yeah. replay it for, you know, a ton of clients who we've had to help through this in the year. You're absolutely right. One of the mistakes that agencies make when they get to the bargaining table is, presuming that if they're working or if they're negotiating with an enterprise size company on the other side who either has procurement involved or legal involved, they're assuming that the contract that gets slid across the table at them is the done deal and they can either sign it or not get the business. And it's absolutely not true, as you've just indicated. Yep. So I, I, I love that you said that because agencies need to understand their power in this situation and you'll never have more leverage than you have than you have at the time when um, you negotiate that agreement. And so um, it's not an excuse to be um, ridiculous about um, where your lines in the sand are, but there are certain areas where, you know, you should back down as an agency. And I also think coming to the table with your own version of a master service agreement is imperative. It may not be the document you end up using. And that's okay. It's, it demonstrates to the prospect that you understand the legal structure of the relationship and you understand what terms need to be in there to protect the agency and that you're willing you know, to have the conversations about them. So um, I, I love that that was your take on it uh, you know, when you were in the trenches of negotiating these things. And I also respect what you said about you know, your counterparts in the marketing departments of your clients, they are kind of stuck in the middle because they've got their own hoops to jump through, um, whether it's legal or procurement. Um, and so they can be your best advocates. If you're an agency trying to get one of these documents negotiated and across the finish line so you can get the work started, is to really work with your business counterparts in marketing to really determine what issues are most important to them so you can get past some of these things in the contract stage. Right, right, exactly. And and you've probably seen this too, but I think in the early days, and I've seen lots of agencies do this, is they just shoot over their MSA and say, it's like, yep, yeah, just need to sign off here. And then of course that adds another three weeks of legal back and forth as opposed to talking to your direct report, maybe sharing sharing it on a Zoom call and saying, here's where there's there could be problems with legal. Here's where we've gotten questions in the past. So I wanted to clarify this so that you can go in armed and that makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. Yeah, have open conversations about it and and start as early as you can. I mean, yeah, it does take a while. And so I I know you've called me on a Wednesday and that you already started work on a Monday. Um, and so you need the contract yesterday. And, you know, our hands are kind of tied at that point. If you're negotiating with an enterprise, yeah. entity, just understand it, that patience is going to be part of the formula. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and finally, just to turn this question to one one last category, then I want to get into what, what you're up to now um, as we kind of finish off the time. Yeah. Um, uh, the 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 freelancer agency relationship or the free or the employee agency relationship. What have you seen go wrong there, and what's what's one thing that you can do to avoid it? Yeah, well, you know, More I mean, as uh, I don't have a single agency client that doesn't access talent on a freelance basis occasionally, and in some cases, it's a huge part of their business model. And so, what we see there most frequently is the lack of a solid independent contractor agreement in place between the agency and the independent contractor. The main reason that it's important is because, and most agency owners don't like this because it's illogical to them from a business point of view, but without a written agreement with those freelancers, you don't own the rights to the work that they've done for you, even if you've paid them for it. And guess what? If you don't own them, then neither can your client. So it creates a whole chain of title problem that nobody thinks about until there's some big corporate transaction later on, or there's some infringement problem, or the freelancer gets upset because they haven't been paid or they haven't been paid in a timely manner and they want to enforce their copyrights. So the moral of the story is that if you're using freelancers as part of your business model, and every agency I know is um, look at what you're doing to document those relationships. And it doesn't have to be rocket science. Have a solid standard template that you're using and use it one time with each freelancer. And then you know you what? You never have to use it again in most cases. You can simply do a statement of work each time you send them a new project. It doesn't have to be hard. If you are organized and you've got a solid set of tools, this stuff does not have to be challenging. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and kind of closing this out, I, I know that as uh, ever, rather, it sounds like you're practicing what you preach and you're developing some, some pretty compelling IP yourself. So I'd love to hear what you're, what you're working on and what that's going to look like for your clients. Well, thanks. Yep. Yeah, we are. We are, um, you know, we, we have developed a lot of IP because of working in a particular vertical over the years. And so, One of the things we recognized um, as a result of the research that we were talking about earlier and just as a result of the patterns that we see at the firm is that there are a lot of agencies out there who could really be helped by having access to a standard set of legal training and legal tools that are geared towards agencies. And so uh, what we're working on is uh, an opportunity to create at scale, um, all these materials accessible on a subscription basis for agencies so that um, they've got access to what they need um, on a sort of a self-serve basis, um, but things that are vetted by um, legal practitioners who understand the agency world and the legal issues they face. So we expect that to be on the market late summer um, 2020. Yeah. Awesome. And where can people go to stay ahead of that and get in touch with you and so on? Yeah, you can reach me directly, Sharon at legalandcreative.com. And um, you'll be able to find it at agencylegalprotection.com. If you go there now, you'll see our current agency legal toolkit, which you can still access, um, but it's not a subscription product. The new version of it will be accessible on a subscription basis. Awesome. Awesome. That sounds great. Sharon, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. Thanks again for listening to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. If you are ready to get beyond personal networks for your agency and you want to do it in a way that's tasteful and sustainable and allows you to build momentum and allows you to delegate 
and is something that you can actually ship on. If you want to get all of that in the most portable way that we know, the best thing to do is to sign up for the launch of our first ever agency lead generation course titled the Agency Lead Generation Course. And if you'd like to get on that initial launch list, and we're only going to be launching to this list to begin with, that means you're going to get the lowest possible investment. That means you're going to get a whole lot of extra goodies. You can do that by going to saleschema.com slash course launch. Again, that's saleschema.com slash course launch, one word. Thanks again for listening and look forward to catching you on the next episode.